At The Influencer Collective, we're not in business to repeat old recipes or create perennial relationships. TIC has a mission to grow evergreen connections within our community. And how do we do that? At The Influencer Collective, we have curated a variety of recognized experts across different industries. Part of the human condition is to pass on your legacy to the next generation. And as silly as it may sound, podcasts, unlike other forms of media, aren't as vulnerable to the barrage of advertisements. Whether it's for your company, nonprofit, or something more artful, there's so much under the surface that needs to be recognized. It's just you, your mic, and your audience listening to your story, your legacy. I'm Jen Sherman, founder of The Influencer Collective. Join us. Welcome to the Influencer Collective Show. I'm your host, Jen Sherman, and we have a very special episode today. It's our first roundtable. Uh, we have some great recognized experts in the area. We're going to talk about food distribution and innovations around that and, you know, what does the future of the food industry look like? So welcome, everyone. How are you doing today? We're great. 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 Thanks, Jen. Good. Awesome. Awesome. So I would love to just kind of start off by... Um, having each of you give a little bit of background, um, not too much just, you know, just to tell the audience kind of where you guys have come from, you know, where, where you work. Um, so if we want to start with Jeff. Sure. All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeff Grass. I'm the uh, co-founder and CEO of Hungry, um, which uh, pre-COVID was a platform for uh, that connected businesses with, with, with top local chefs, provide um, business and event catering. And, uh, We've since expanded into a number of new businesses, but, uh, and my background is very much of a serial tech entrepreneur. Awesome. I'm trying to keep it to the, under that minute mark for you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Deborah, do you want to take the cake? Sure. I'm Deborah Moser, and I am the co-founder of Central Farm Markets, and I'm president of Meat Crafters. Um, that's a local boutique charcuterie company, and uh, just having a lot of fun during COVID with all of this. I bet, I bet. Brenda? Hi, I'm Brenda Cromer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Frontier Kitchen. We specialize in helping startup chefs and new food entrepreneurs get started. Uh, we offer them coaching and production space, and I get to work with all of the great people here on this podcast. Awesome. And Dan? I'm Dan Simons. I'm one of the co-founders and co-owners of Farmers Restaurant Group. We've got seven independently owned restaurants. Our biggest partners are a group of American family farmers uh, in North Dakota, but we also have farmers from all over the country in, uh, involved in the restaurants as investors and of course as suppliers. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time you know, busting tables and washing dishes or, or getting my team inspired to do that, but all on the mission and behalf of advocating for American family farmers, which is the whole purpose for why our, our restaurants exist. I love it. And Christian. Hi, I'm Christian Lanou. I am chef and co-owner of Sour Dog Concepts. We are a vegan meal prep company and we specialize in fermentation and pickles. Uh, we're based out of Northern Virginia, and we work out of Frontier Kitchen um, with Brenda. Happy, happy food family we have right here. Well, I well, just want to thank you all for joining, um, joining me today. We're going to have a great discussion. I would really like to start off with talking about the supply chain, particularly um, how does moving the distribution system to local change the picture? And can it be changed to a fully local distribution system? Either Brenda or Dan, if you wanted to start there. Sure. Um, can it be changed to a fully local distribution system? We can start with that. No, is the short answer. That's because in Virginia, coffee doesn't grow. And I don't know about anybody else on this panel, but I do not function without my coffee. So there are some essential items that have to be cut to come in from other areas. But what we know is how broken the distribution system is. We're just coming out of COVID. Grocery stores were empty. 
while we were dumping billions of supply, pounds of supplies of everything else that was supposed to go to restaurants. It's broken. Christian has some firsthand experience, and I'm sure Dan does as well, with how broken this system ended up during COVID and during a pandemic, which really tells you how siloed it is and how we aren't paying attention to the local farmers and aren't prioritizing ours. I think Dan really has better firsthand experience in this. It's, it is, it is a complex topic, but it is not necessarily complicated. What I mean is there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of reasons that we've ended up where we are, but at least for me, because I like things simple, it's really, it's a monopoly antitrust issue. And so there, there are a few things about capitalism that are amazing and it can be a force for huge good. And there are a few things about capitalism that <clears throat> really can end up making it a force for evil. And I think what we see in the food supply system is due to the lack of antitrust enforcement, we've ended up with these, with a few massive players in production, like growing the animal or, or growing the product, um, or in processing and in distribution. And so when you end up with a few massive players, you do get incredible efficiency. You do get, you can get some very low cost you can also lose quality and you can lose resilience and you can lose diversity of product. And that's what, what COVID really typified. You know, when, when you saw the total charade of the president's administration issuing sort of a must return to work order because you saw CEOs of a few processors saying, getting us all scared, there'll be no pork on the shelf unless you make these people come back to work. Well, it's true because you have three or four processors control 80% of the supply. But instead, what we should have been saying is, how do we get funding and legislation and structure that supports regional processors, regional growers, and regional distributors so that we have a more diversified system that operates locally or regionally? It will be more resilient. Um, but, but as you just said, it's not about local. Right? It is about an integrated, well-connected regional system with lots and lots of players instead of a few that hold all the money, all the power, and frankly, all the profit. And you end up with farmers and chefs with no money. But trust me, there is billions and billions of dollars and profit made in, in the middle. And we need to get some of that to the ends and we can have a far, far more resilient and effective overall system. And Deborah, your experiment during COVID uh, with the farmers markets and delivery really indicated the demand in the system that is so latent and so pent up. Right. Um, first of all, that when the rush hit the grocery stores, people panicked. And then they panicked a second time when the reports, as Dan said, the reports came out that there were going to be shortages. Then they figured out, oh, wait, the local farmers markets have the local farmers and they haven't run out. And our farmers got hit big time. Um, and so it was really interesting to watch. And I know on the, you know, that was at the farmer's markets. On the other side, at Meat Crafters, we use small family farms out of the Midwest for our products. And we were having trouble getting them in. Uh, we were still getting them in, but we were working on a daily basis to keep those shipments coming in um, because that's what we do. We support small farmers. So the whole, the whole supply chain affected everything from producer, manufacturer, to the farmer's markets in, in your local neighborhood. And I would even say Christian can speak to it affected the needy families and the programs that were going on to help them as well. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, I think it was a hard pivot for everybody, for producers, farmers, the restaurants, um, the programs. Uh, you know, we're part of this program through Frontier and with Fairfax County, where we provide meals to underserved families um, that didn't have access, um, you know, whether as much of that was pre or post COVID, it definitely had an effect. Um, you know, these families couldn't find the things that they needed 
um, or couldn't get the access or have the funding to to get these things. Um, so you know, a lot of new I think programs developed from this um, to allow this sort of interconnectivity that Dan was speaking about. Um, you know, yes, is is hyper locality like going to support you know our our structure in our society? No, but if all of these local areas are uh, a collective or a coalition, then absolutely these things can come together and and help support our our food system, which is obviously yes, it is broken. Yeah, I think those are all very good points. And I and that's what I was envisioning all of us coming together. It's like, let's talk about the solution because I feel like each and every one of you have an aspect or um, either a platform or, you know, restaurant or just access to some portion of that supply chain that we can all come together and figure out what's next. Um, and kind of moving into the next topic about hospitality and the customer experience. I mean, as someone who was an avid restaurant grower and bar hopper um, uh, prior to COVID, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, that you know, I, I've been in my house for five days now um, and it's, it's, it's just a different life. So I would really like to talk about what the future of hospitality and the customer experience looks like. I know Dan mentioned um, on a previous podcast of ours that he will meet the consumer wherever they are. And I love that. That always is to us. Uh, stayed in, in my head. So if we could talk about that and also, you know, what is consumers are getting used to eating at home, you know, the at-home dining experience, you know, how can the hospitality industry meet the consumer where they are and still provide that top-notch experience? Um, food delivery, right? So food delivery and presentation. And so I'd like to go in uh, to that topic and um, if Dan wanted to start or Christian, Jeff, uh, anyone? Sure, I can give you a couple thoughts to get it going. Um, I think with a lot of fast moving, you know, societal changes like we're having now, it, it's tempting or typical to assume that, you know, things have, things have changed forever. Um, and I'm not convinced of that, actually. I think that businesses, in order to survive and get to tomorrow or get to next spring or get to a, a post-vaccine and an effective therapeutics world, you have to change tremendously to survive. But, you know, I'm trying to do a lot of reading about history and, uh, you know, really focus on how and why the Roaring Twenties followed the flu pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic of, you know, 1918, 1919. And so I think during the height of a moment of fear, people can tend to say, oh, there'll be no more joy again, because all you know is the fear that you're immersed in. And so I think there will be some permanent changes. You know, I think there is some tech and some contactless payment and some things that are just more efficient. Um, I do think there is maybe some hygiene awareness that, frankly, we should have always had, right? Like the flu doesn't need to spread as easily as it spreads. So I like some of those permanent changes, but I think hospitality is hospitality. I think heart is heart. I think service with a smile, whether that smile is under the mask or the mask is gone. Um, you know, you know how that feeling you get when you are greeted. And whether that's a delivery driver or it's catering in your home, uh, I think people are going to want hospitality. They're going to want social experiences. There's no way that human beings are going to change millions of years of evolution and not thrive on social interaction, right? We're tribal. We like people. Um, and so I, I think that there will be lessons learned. There will be some permanent changes and not just because, because I'm an optimist, but I think we will see the roaring twenties with close social interactivity um, with some of these changes that, have, that will have lasted. So th that's my current thinking. Um, God, I hope I'm right. <laughs> uh, amen to that, uh, Dan. I can, I can add a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think you, know, you talked about how important, you know, the experiences, the hospitality experience. Um, that's, that's one thing that we have tried to do at Hungary is really focus on um, you know, people, if, if for now, while COVID is here, you know, you're, you're stuck at home um, and, you know, it starts to feel like Groundhog Day, right? Like every day you're, 
all day in your home and then it's the next day and it's going to start over you know how can we provide you know cool experiences for folks um, uh, uh, you know in their home and so um, just I'll give you two quick examples just to um, you know share kind of our, our view I guess of, of how can we extend hospitality um, so one is is we've started partnering with with Major League Baseball teams so we're partnered with the Washington Nationals and the Texas Rangers to deliver game day fan packs of food from the stadium bobbleheads you know cool things that um, you know, allow, you know, families to come together and watch a baseball game. You can't do it in the stadium, but you can, you know, try to recreate that experience. And, um, and we've gotten really, really positive feedback from fans on that. Um, another is, is our, you know, normally in normal times, Hungary has a substantial event side to the business. Um, obviously that's gone to zero here in, in COVID world. Um, but we've tried to create, we now have a lot of virtual events and um, just virtual Zoom only, you know, people are, I think, are getting fatigued of, but um, we now are, 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 are sending experience kits to uh, people's homes that, you know, really draw them in and make it more of an online, offline experience. Um, um, this is not meant to be an ad, but just more of like an example of it's just kind of cool um, things that, you know, just make it more fun. And so, again, it's thinking through the lens of an experience, hospitality, like how do you try to provide this? And in the home, right, which is really difficult because you can't actually even go into the home. And so, um, so I think we've got to, you know, be creative in our thinking and, uh, uh, and and try to adapt in that way. And and I agree with Dan also. So in closing, just you know, I think the future is um, is bright. Um, I think it's going to be a long, hard winter. Um, but on the other side of that, uh, 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 you know, we'll, we'll start to get back to normal and and more normal experiences will, will start to be possible again. Jeff, I really like what you said. I, and I think there's a differentiator here that needs to be adjusted. And there's a difference between having an experience and making food or eating food. And that doesn't mean food isn't part of your experience. Of course it is. But perhaps what we're looking at here is a, a somewhat necessary market correction where the consumer now understands really what they're buying. Are you buying an experience or are you just buying food? And Yelp is now reporting 60% of restaurants are likely to close permanently uh, if the pandemic continues and for all views, it looks like it will. So our humans will always want experience. I fully agree with Dan. Entertainment will come back, but perhaps what we're just looking at is an entirely different version of it. And the home delivery is going to remain strong, I think, because that's food. But having delivered experiences is a whole nother thing that really leaves a huge market opportunity on the table um, that Jeff, you're grabbing on too early, which is really cool. Yeah, I would agree with that. Christian, did you have anything to add there or Deborah? Well, I think, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, um, yeah, great points, both Dan, Jeff, uh, Brenda. Yes, the, you know, what, what the future holds, none of us know. None of us have the answers. We just have to do the best to provide the experience that we're used to providing for our guests. Um, for Dan, that's still in the restaurants. For myself and my partner, um, we were both chefs. Now our business is home delivery. Um, so I think, yes, yes, it's a huge industry. There's billions of dollars out there. Everybody that couldn't cook before this started still doesn't know how to cook, still has things to do. Um, there's 50-50. Some people are going to still go out and socialize. Some people are not going to do that. It's just the market is there. It's just split now. And it's, it's up to us to figure out how do we, how do we meet the needs of these people. And, and yes, the experience is, is part of that. I, I would tend to agree with that. And I think that um, I agree with Brenda that this is not going to be over soon. Uh, and we're hearing more on our end of people who do want to have those experiences and they're already talking about the holidays. So they're trying to figure out how are they going to celebrate the holidays this year being separated by distance or by family. And uh, I think that's an opportunity for restaurants for uh, food people to, to create a, uh, an event or an experience for families to get together virtually. I mean, there are going to be families like we are, we're separated coast to coast. So we're trying to figure that out as well. 
Yeah, and I think those are some, oh, go ahead. Jen, I was just going to add, um, I think one of the challenges, you know, we we're talking before about the structure of the system um, is, is because so much is now happening in the home is, you know, the last mile logistics are expensive, right? Like look at the, you know, how much a DoorDash or an Uber Eats takes, you know, from a restaurant and in, in order to, and they're still not even making money. Um, and so, um, I, you know, we have found our, our delivery logistics, which in normal times is very catering centric, we're now leveraging um, to help in food relief and other ways. We're delivering a million and a half meals a month now. Um, and what it's, it's driven us to do is figure out how to do it crazy, like super efficiently. And so um, I think that will be, you know, one of the opportunities as well is how can people, uh, how, how can, can entrepreneurs and companies sort of rethink sort of food delivery and, and delivering experiences, whether that's bundling them together to deliver, you know, multiple things at the same time or, or other things. But um, I think there's, there's, there's challenge, you know, all throughout the system, even that last mile logistics, I think is a challenge that still needs to be sort of refund, re rethought. Yeah, and, and just to that point is actually you brought, um, segueing to the uh, next topic within the topic, this topic is how does food delivery presentation and quality control play a part? And then also, how will chefs play a role in this? Is that to me? I'm, I'm happy to. Yeah, uh, oh, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say, I, I, was okay. like, I, I think Jen, I think, I feel like Jeff could start with, since you have like a, an amazing uh, platform of chefs. Sure. So, so the question is around uh, food delivery quality control. Um, yes. uh, well, well, obviously it's critical, right? You're talking about food safety, right? At, at, at a certain level in terms of uh, quality control. Um, you know, what, what we're delivering now is, is a lot of pre-made sort of chilled meals and things that can be then heated up and still provide kind of a high quality experience. Um, so, you know, that may be one of the avenues to, to sort of rethink, you know, how do we deliver rather than, you know, sort of, you know, Americans want things on demand. So I want to you know, make a phone call and I want a cheeseburger delivered. And, you know, the average cost of a meal on DoorDash is, you know, $18.50. Right? So at some point that's just too expensive. And so, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, there are ways to do it where it's it's still you know very safe, but but uh, but I think you know the current approach is is is, is lacking. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think also here, yeah, yeah. So sure, no, that's I actually wanted Christian up next. So that's perfect. Thanks. Um, yeah. So as a, a chef approaching meal delivery and a catering aspect, which is not something that you know, that wasn't something that we did or specialized in. Um, so it was challenging at first, but it forces you to rethink what types of foods you can do and how you prepare them um, to be able to A, sit for X amount of days and travel um, being however it's getting to from point A to point B. Is it refrigerated? Is it not insulated bag? You know, how long are these products going to last in this specific container? Um, but yeah, those are, those are all very important things and approaching it from, from this aspect is, is, was a new thing for us. And Dan, how is that, you know, I, I went to, I was in Bethesda, I went to Woodmont Grill and I really just wanted the French fries and the spinach dip. And they were not, you could not get that as takeout, right? Because they're so about the quality control and making sure that what you're having is the same type of uh, quality as in the restaurant. So I was wondering, Dan, if you wanted to touch on that with takeout um, for your restaurants. Yeah, I actually love this massive change, forcing the majority of the talent to uh, come up with new ways to create excellent food when and where it will be eaten. And so in some senses, you know, I always admire, uh, you know, any chef or restaurateur who says, you know, I'm so sorry, but I won't do it that way because it degrades the quality. So, you know, I'm a restaurant guy. I admire that. At the same time, as an entrepreneur, I think to myself, yeah, go ahead. Keep holding on tight to your principles and your limitations and keep arguing in defense of what you refuse to do and see how that, you know, what I know as an entrepreneur Good luck with that strategy. And so I admire the commitment to quality and I challenge the refusal to change 
and it's personal, so I'm not like criticizing anyone. I'm just sort of like noting that recipe. And I think that, that when you now have forced all of this, let's just call it culinary talent, um, to say, hey, look, you can't do it the way we've always done it. Well, I think what you're really going to see now is culinary talent that has food and entrepreneurship and the ability to change and adapt and, you know, shelf life. You know, th there are simple things, right? If you're going to make delicious mashed potatoes and you know they're going to be chilled and you know they're going to be reheated in a microwave, you can have a little less butter in the recipe and you can put a little stick of little piece of refrigerated butter so that if when somebody microwaves it at home, that butter melts. So you can be a, you can be culinary arrogant and culinarily arrogant and you can criticize a microwave and you can say, well, I don't want to do leftovers and you can go out of business. So, you know, I know for me and my team, we've had to like look ourselves in the mirror because like, for example, pizza, I've always been one to say like, real pizza doesn't travel. And I still, uh, you know, that's what, that's my opinion of what I think of chain pizza. But so like, okay, better packaging. We need to take this artisan pizza and do something different with the recipe. So I like the, the forceful challenge. And there's so much amazing culinary talent out there that you can see people responding and coming up with the solves they need to. Totally. Yeah, I agree. It's a, I think it's going to be like another like culinary renaissance. Right. It's like you were talking about the downs and the ups of, you know, from into the roaring 20s. It was the same with Black Death into the Italian Renaissance, like from destruction comes creation. So it's forcing this new evolution of ideas and, and you know, creativity. There's a technology renaissance that's coming out of this, too, because packaging is a pain point for everyone. Our packaging for food is generally not great. It's always expensive, more expensive than usually the food products we're putting in it. And so there's a technology revolution on the cusp of this too. Huge opportunity for companies that want to rethink packaging to get that food there in better quality. Because it's not just us making the food, it's how it's delivered and in what. When we first started with a, a rather large company that was just experimenting with groceries several years ago, they had a little problem with them. And the drivers, the last mile drivers, uh, decided to flip them, flip the food around in the car. And so, of course, customers would call us and they were very unhappy that the packages were broken and the seals were broken and the food was disgusting looking. It didn't go out that way. But kind of going to Jeff's, J Jeff learned this early on, I think, because his crew does a really good job. Uh, of a great presentation and being careful with the products, but we got to dummy proof it. Uh, if this is going into major courier supply chains, how do we dummy proof the food so it actually gets there looking right? Uh, so people still want to eat it because people eat with their eyes. And so what do we do? And there's a huge opportunity. I don't have that solution, but there's a huge <laughs> opportunity in the market to say for someone who does have that solution to really come up and fix it. You know, Brenda, Brenda, just adding on to that, you bring up such a good point with packaging and the entrepreneurial opportunity there, I think speaks to de delivering quality while also not destroying the planet. And so, you yeah. know, for myself, I can just dive on the sword and say, I've been, you know, like horrified and saddened by the amount of additional plastic that I am responsible for putting out there. Um, and we do what we can to mitigate it, but you know, we're, and we eliminated plastic straws. I started a nonprofit to reduce single use plastics and I'm participating in a prime offending of the planet by what, what we're doing. So I think you will start to see more innovations in packaging that does right by the food and does right by the planet. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's true. We had, um, we started at the farmer's market, we started home delivery, and that was one of the biggest challenges, how to get people to package some of their produce, some of the uh, food to go, so that because we had drivers, and we have uh, refrigerated trucks and professional drivers, we're very concerned about the safety of the food, 
But then the packaging became a huge issue, and we had to work with a lot of the different vendors to get that packaging so that it would hold up. There are certain products that we're not going to allow on the trucks because we know that, you know, for example, a very fancy cake is probably not going to make it in good shape. So we've worked with them, and it's been a real challenge. And this summer with the heat, even in the refrigerated trucks, just packing those trucks, something like a head of, you know, a little bunch of basil will wilt very quickly. Um, and one of our producers said those plastic containers that he went to, they were frying the greens. So, you know, they were sweating inside. So it's a real problem. And I hope we do come up with a good solution. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, you know, I think about, frankly, I got my Amazon Prime Now delivery because, you know, they come to the door. It's fabulous. And the ba bags, it's like one item in these brown bags. I'm like, this is such a waste. Why, why couldn't you not put more items? It, it doesn't make any sense. And this is something that, you know, well, I'm not a huge fan of the paper straws because I think they kind of go, but I will do it for the planet. So like, I think that we just need to, there some innovation, maybe they'll, that'll be round two. I'll uh, bring on a packaging guru um, to talk about that. But I think that you guys all made, you know, very, very good points there. And thinking about segueing into, um, you know, food innovation and distribution. I mean, we have, as we know, so much talent right now, you know, between the chefs that Jeff has on his platform, you know, the chefs and entrepreneurs cooking and Brenda's kitchen, um, the testing grounds for your product ever at the farmer's market. Um, I would like to talk about how does, you know, Frontier Kitchen and the farmer's market serve as a testing ground for new CPG businesses and chefs? Well, I'll start on this one just because we're the baseline and I work with most of these fabulous people on this podcast. Um, so what's great about what we do at Frontier Kitchen is we're the support end. We have the facilities for new chefs. We teach them and we coach them, but I do not and will not sell food. That's not my role. But where I can help and where the fantastic people on this podcast help us, uh, both Jeff and Deborah, we use as platforms. Our clients go to them to get their expertise. Do what you're good at. I'm not good at farmer's markets and I am definitely not good at catering sales. So it is actually working with partners like Jeff and Deborah, uh, where we coached Christian when he came on. So Christian's uh, company is about six months old now and is a stellar example of somebody who pivoted very, very well amongst very adverse situations. As he said, he and his partner were chefs and were laid off. Sorry, Christian, I'm telling your story here. Um, but Christian came on and they had great ideas and just needed a little bit of direction pointing. And we actually pointed Christian in both directions and his company works both with Jeff and Deborah. Um, and it's really helped stabilize his company in a very short amount of time. So he and his partner Shelby are very good and adapt very quickly, but it really helps us test. The, both of these entities are, are, are for different types of chefs and products. Jeff goes hot. Deborah is a great testing ground for different products for how the people will respond to products and longer term CPG kinds of things are fantastic on her platform. Jeff's working on experiences and the catering experience and the things that happen that way. So it really gives the chefs a very good way to start. Um, I know they work with a lot more people than just mine, but they are both fantastic resources for new chefs and new ideas coming onto the market. And like Christians can very rapidly scale with the right network and partners. And that's what we work on and, and with these guys. Uh, that's, that's true. And um, we've had a great partnership with Frontier Kitchen. It, um, Frontier has sent us some wonderful people. And once they get out of their programs, which are very comprehensive, and they come to the markets, then it's a different experience. It's the face-to-face, -face, it's the interaction with the customer. It's how do you, it, you know, it's not just set up a tent and uh, they will come and buy it. There's a lot more to it. So we work on packaging, we work on uh, sales techniques, we work on marketing. 
um, and, and all of those components, how to get out to the retail industry. And then this year with COVID, we had to really spin on a dime with the farm markets and we had to put in home delivery and pre-order and pickup. And our, I can tell you one of our markets, our car line does not stop all day. People have found the convenience of oh, you know what, this is really easy. I don't have to get out and go into the market, but I can still get what I want. So teaching the vendors how to adapt to how the customers are now buying. And it's been a real pleasure to work with Frontier Kitchen. And, um, and we have some chefs coming to us now too. We just had a chef, Barrel and Crow. He opened a pasta company. And he is starting at the farmer's market and it's just going really, really well. So we'd love to be the testing ground. We'd love to help uh, grow the, and incubate the businesses and want to thank the partnership that we have with Frontier Kitchen. And you too, Deborah. That's not an ad, by the way. That was just a natural conversation. Just a mutual, mutual uh, did anyone else Jen, have anything Jen, I, to add I, on that too? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'll add a quick thought. Um, you know, you look at the pandemic and the impact it's had on the on the restaurant industry. I mean, it's just been a massive destruction of of, of, of value and dollars and and capital, um, such that uh, you know, you know, the, the innovation, uh, you know, that, that Christian was talking about before. I think what you're going to find is is very few people are and, and companies are going to have the capital to you know, be, be back in the restaurant business quickly. And I think where a lot of the innovation is going to take place is places like Frontier Kitchen, like Brenda's, um, you know, which provide, you know, chefs this, this platform to start something, try things out, you know, in a very low cost way. Um, I've even had, you know, recently folks coming to me saying, I want to develop a restaurant concept with no kitchen in the restaurant. You know, can we leverage, you know, chefs out of, out of you know, incubator kitchens and places like that to, to provide the food? Um, and so I, I think, you know, that's really where, um, you know, where a lot of the innovation is going to occur here over the next coming years is just because of the, you know, the low cost nature and the ability to get going quickly and, and the dearth of capital, I think it's going to be around for you know, in the restaurant industry. Yeah, but I'll have to say, we can build what we build, but we can't do it by ourselves. And this network of people is so very important because like the last mile things that Jeff was talking about and Deborah were talking about, those are things that I don't experience until they, they do. And so we still need a network. Talking about distribution networks and supply networks, we still need a network. We have the ability to put local chefs into the system, but we are not the system. Deborah and Jeff and Dan are the system. Christian happens to be a local chef. Uh, <laughs> so as we talk about the larger systems being broken, what this group can offer is a solution in the start. Uh, we've got a long way to go to, to do it all, but this is where it starts. You know, Brenda, I would add on to that, that um, it starts and, and then it influences the consumer. And this drive towards conscious consumerism it is actually what I think will end up driving the, the biggest fixes we have because I look at it like little players like us have a chance to influence people because we have more personal and direct, you know, smaller relationships. And then that message can get spread. And then, then someone who wants to win at the ballot box can attach to the messages that matter to the conscious consumer and they become the conscious voter. And you go from, from what I think are the things that need fixing on the issues we're talking about to, you know, it's from the bottom up from individuals. Those are the consumers. And it's really from the top down from the legislators and the business people sit in the middle because we can influence the consumer and we can influence the elected official and we can role model profit and mindfulness and show that you can generate exceptional returns, you can do right by your community, and you can do what I think is, is a kind of a patriotic thing, which is getting food to people who need it, having a more resilient food supply. And so I'm totally with you that, that small networks like ours, you know, you, you feel like it starts small, but you know, that's where it, that's where it begins. And we know now that things can 
escalate rapidly with catching the voice of you know a passionate group and getting it onto a platform on the elected officials uh, and food is often can be a nonpartisan topic there's a tremendous partisanship when it comes to antitrust uh, but when you tie it back to food which then affects everybody you, i think there's a shot at really making progress i completely agree and we're in the nation's capital so i mean like we're we can make we can make solutions you know i i think to, to brenda's point there's a reason i really wanted to bring um, the five of you together after having conversations with you all um, and just thinking about, you know, going into this new normal, you know, I, first thing I want to do once the vaccine comes out is like go to all my favorite restaurants and have the best time. You know, I, I am such that millennial, right? The, the one that loves the experiences. Um, but COVID has, of course, going back to the beginning has demonstrated our current food, food distribution system is broken. And, you know, I would love to hear from all of you, you know, how we can leverage technology like a platform like Jeff's, you know, how can we streamline distribution? I mean, Dan, you, you had such great access to these different supply chains of farmers um, around the, the, the country. So I would love to kind of hear from all of you, you know, of course, op I'm the most optimistic person as well. And, you know, putting, being optimistic, but, but also realistic in, you know, what, how can we leverage technology and leverage, you know, the greatness minds of, of all, all of us as entrepreneurs to um, find a solution. So whoever would like to start, if it's Brenda. I you're guess up. that says something, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, how do we leverage what's happening? I, I, this is an earthquake. This is a, co a tsunami. We could not predict what happened to our industry. Um, all, but everything that we're talking about here had started before COVID. It just accelerated the process. Since at least 2008, local food and the understanding of the health requirements that come from local food has been growing. It's just been in single digits. And now all of a sudden, 50% of the country or 75% of the country understands it's a lot easier to get beef from your local rancher than it is to try and get it from across the country. And so those distribution networks are now going to have corrections. Um, what does the new normal look like? Restaurants will come back, but they'll know what they're selling. I think a lot of the young restaurateurs that we work with didn't really know why they were in the restaurant other than their accomplishment was to have a brick and mortar store. Well, are you selling an experience or are you selling food? And if you're selling an experience, people will buy that experience when they're ready to come back. But understand what you're selling and charge appropriately. Restaurants have a horrible profit margin but because they're not selling food, but that's the only thing people pay for. So perhaps a restaurant has to reconsider why people come to them and charge appropriately. Um, on the food side, food has got to get out. People don't cook more. They cook a little bit more now during COVID, but they still have children. I still have kids. Uh, we are still busy professionals. So getting food to people where they are, mostly at home, is not going to stop. This delivery trend, everyone loves it. Everybody loves getting their food at home. And whether it's hot food or all my meals for a week come at the same time and I put them in the fridge and reheat them and they're delicious from five different chefs, that's wonderful. We're seeing a trend of a lot of new sales platforms coming online to help local farmers and help this local distribution system, help the local producers in my kitchens and others. So this trend of how we get food different from experience is going to continue and what we'll see by 2030 is people will get food mostly from delivery even the grocery stores are recognizing this and they will still go out and have experiences but they'll be very tailored they'll be very purposeful experiences instead of this i don't feel like cooking let's go to a restaurant so that's where i think we're going
you know, the thought that, that, that I was having is um, kind of back to, I think what Dan was talking about early on in, in terms of just the way that the food system is currently structured has such concentrated control and such concentrated, you know, insight into, into the demand. Um, quick little side story, a month after COVID hit, um, a pork processor in Pennsylvania called and said, I have a million pounds of pork and I'm, I'm just, I want to give it away. Will you take it? And we're like, well, I, you know, he, he was calling everywhere, like couldn't even give it away. You know, a month later, we're in a pork shortage, right? Um, it was just, it was just crazy to see that happening. And, and I think, um, I think part of the, a big part of the solution to Dan's point is, is consumer demand for you know, higher quality, healthier, locally sourced, you know, uh, food. Um, the other challenge is how do we how do we create more transparency in in you know between demand and supply and uh, and help you know create the connectivity and then there's a logistics layer obviously as well but I think that's where technology and some internet and some great entrepreneurs can come into play in terms of like how do you create you know more visibility in the local farms and what they're selling um, and and be able to match that that supply to the demand that is as Brenda's pointed out is, is growing quickly. People are realizing that, um, you know, eating, eating the, the stuff that we eat, you know, matters. And, uh, uh, and, and, and many times what we buy at the grocery store isn't, isn't really that good for us. So. Yeah, I'd like to touch on the fact, like a more like a broader scope of the distribution system, uh, like from the farms and the manufacturers to the chefs and the vendors. Um, as much as I like to think it's not, it is very political. Um, I think it's going to require resources. It's going to require lobbying. Um, it's going to require education from on the part of people like every one of us that's on this podcast. And I think it's going to take um, effort from chefs and restaurateurs as a whole, um, but mostly the lobbying and the legislation to get funding and get necessary resources to local and regional producers to create a network um, to help support the broader damaged one that we're currently working in. Dan? These are all such good topics. There's a lot swirling through my mind. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future that the more the consumer becomes educated, um, and I think both through the consumer's desire to be educated, but through the provider, whether that's the chef or the logistics company or anybody, you know, like when there can be a point of difference with the brands and part of the experience is education, you can maybe merge the, the consumers who desire to get educated and the consumers who don't really know, they don't know yet that they care. Um, that you can really harness that desire. You know, who doesn't want a safer, more resilient food system? You don't actually have really any individual human opposed to this. Um, you have some capitalist forces opposed to it, and you have plenty of capitalist forces who see that you can make money and, and do it well and take care of the customer. Um, but part of the way the customer can help is ask the questions. So like, if it bothers you, all that packaging you get from Amazon, ask yourself, are you at least sending an email every week to Amazon asking them what they're doing about packaging? So your voice matters. They do actually have a big task force on packaging and I think they will do some amazing things, but we all have to speak up and encourage our customers to speak up to us and to others. And then ideally the customers would, you know, bring some more diversity into their diets. They do think this is upon chefs and vendors and restaurants, you know, there's all these different species of mushrooms and our customer knows one. There's all these different species of fish and our customer wants salmon and tuna when certainly in the DMV, what our customers should be eating is Chesapeake Bay uh, blue catfish. It's an invasive species. It tastes delicious and you're supporting real local fishermen and a local supply chain. So I bring it up as a reference to like a little bit of education and all of a sudden someone's like, oh, okay, I'll eat that. And so I think, knowledge leads to sort of diversity and that diversity in those questions lead to shifts in the business model towards the better. Deborah? I would have to agree with that. Uh, we see that at the farmer's markets. We see people connecting with their food and it's an opportunity to learn about the food. Um, you brought up mushrooms. We have a mushroom stand that has 
I don't know, 30 different kinds of mushrooms. And, and I listen to people as they go over, well, what do I do with this? How do I cook it? What's it good with? Uh, is it nutritious? So I think that there are opportunities to get directly to customers, to consumers, and teach them um, a little bit better. And I, I see, we're seeing at the farmer's market more interest because people have been home. Uh, and they are interacting with their food a little bit closer. So instead of going to a restaurant, ordering a meal, and just sitting and having the conversation, they're actually, their hands are in it now. So we do see a little more connection. I think maybe that's where we can bring some of this together and uh, reach out to the communities uh, more than just being a farmer's market. You know, there's an opportunity there for education and for connection. Yeah, frankly, I think all of those points are really um, interesting in the sense of it's about knowledge is power, right? And to Dan's point, I didn't know that about catfish. Um, now I'm going to go try to find it. Um, but and also to Deborah's point, where I've been, I've also now, you know, really are paying attention to what I eat. Um, and I've, I personally haven't cooked, but when I was in quarantining with my family, I mean, we were just going to the local butcher and we were eating the very, very good meat. We were eating, you know, um, we went to the farm and my mom picked up, you know, all fresh vegetables and really knowing what I'm putting inside my body. And I think just with the pandemic and, and seeing how America, um, has such high rate of, deaths and cases is because of what we put in our body versus other countries. So we're all becoming more aware as um, Americans and just consumers of what are we putting in our bodies? You know, is it fresh? You know, seeing if it's organic versus not organic from a local farm where, you know? So I think there's a lot of conversations that needs to be continued to be had. But I think to your point, Dan, of um, speak up and then also you know, from the business side, I mean, as entrepreneurs and businesses, we have such power to also educate the consumers and the public. So I think there's um, a lot of interesting and innovative solutions. And I'm just excited to see um, what is to come over the next year. Did anyone have anything that they would like to um, share with our audience before we wrapped up today? Thanks for having us. Yeah. Of course, of course. No, it's been great. I'm really um, happy you're all able to join. This is the first roundtable of uh, many to come. I think this went well, so we should continue doing them. Um, and I just want to thank you all for joining um, me today and the Influencer Collective. Um, I am your host, Jen Sherman. We have amazing food entrepreneurs and uh, business owners here who are joining us. And um, I will provide all the links to their socials and stuff in the description in our promotion so you can check everyone out. But um, we will catch you next time. Uh, you can subscribe to the Influence Collective show on iTunes. We're on Spotify now because we got our fifth episode. Um, and subscribe on YouTube at the Influencer Collective. Visit us on Influencer Collective DC and we will catch you next time. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Did you enjoy the jingle? That song is called Luxury, and it's by me, Kat Janis. Find me on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, wherever you get your tunes to hear my newest single, Luxury. It's a luxury.